Jeff, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so you just went to, through a five-day experience um, with Phil Cross Survival, and you fared pretty well. I mean, you, you, you're pretty resilient. It was a resilient course based out of Montana, a whole bunch of different things. What do you think, how, how do you feel about after that experience? You feel like relaxed, you feel good, and like what was the overall sense of that? I, I mean, to just to boil it down to some simple words and emotions, I think, uh, I think it's hard for people to unplug out of their existing reality into a small local bubble of, of like fun challenges and putting, out, putting themselves out, out of their comfort zone. So I think that is just something that's rare and uh, people, I, I think, really want to appreciate that kind of experience right now. Yeah, I, I, we called it, I said, I, I called it resilience, but I kept saying the word exposure because it felt like more like exposure for a lot of people because the first time in most people's lives, they were exposed to things uh, they would normally wouldn't even consider. I mean, we had people from the city, including yourself. Uh, we did kill classes on how to not only dispatch uh, an animal, but clean it, gut it, and then uh, and eat it. I mean, how to cook it and prepare it. I I saw so many people's like eyes get wide, maybe good, bad, or indifferent. But after the whatever the event was, they were just like, "Man, this is insane." Yeah. Um, what's the benefit of that? I mean, because you do it in different ways, right? Navigating your world, which we'll talk about here in a second. Um, but what's the benefit in that nowadays? I mean, I can get fairly philosophical here, but I think in our modern comfort, modern civilization, we've abstracted away from just base reality, right? Like we can make a lot of money just purely through a brick device. And I think that has caused some disconnect from a lot of the social unrest happening right now. Uh, a lot of the policy debates are around who is seeing objective reality clearly and who is living in an abstract, disassociated from reality context. So I think for me, that exposure of, hey, we are ultimately physical animals, uh, you know, people, people in the city, right? Like you can just get Uber Eats, DoorDash, you can live in your box and be completely happy and be entertained by Netflix. And I think that reminder that we are actually very advanced monkeys with a lot of advanced tools uh, and realizing now, especially with the pandemic as well as the social unrest that we're actually not that far away from devolving in back into that crazy monkey landscape and i think that has clicked in a lot of people's minds to realize hey we should not be playing around in abstract land but also realize that the delta from january 2020 until now i think would have been unforeseeable for all of us in 2019 and that same magnitude of the evolution of civilization and culture doesn't seem that impossible anymore. Mm. So I think in that sense, that exposure towards, okay, how do I actually take care of myself if I don't have a mobile device? How do I actually take care of myself if I don't have Uber Eats on demand and available water and like my $3,000 mattress? Yeah, so all at, those experiences, I think are, is giving people a framework or a template to realize, hey, okay, I'm not gonna be, I'm not a master survivalist today, but I think I could do a lot better than I would have done, you know, six months ago. Yeah, we're not so crazy now. Yeah. You know, it's it's 
it's it's been crazy seeing actually the evolution evolution of this where um, people were like you're capitalizing on fear and and you're mongering on you know the the tragedies that are happening in the world but nothing's changed since i was a child i mean like i grew up that way and then going into the infantry and going into special operations we are taught that way so it's like there's a whole breed of species of man who are just living that and people in rural montana live that way normally there's there's considerations for hey the electricity goes out how do you survive because you can't just survive even inside of your insulated home without certain um skill sets right and it's bizarre to me it's strange but it's also fascinating because um now i'm looking at it you know from a business perspective as well as a uh, humanistic perspective at how can we evolve this? How can we get more people to see that light before seemingly it might be too late? And that's that's my fear, right? Because I, I look at this from a strategic special operations, not a crazy prepper a world. And I see a world that, like you said, has the possibility of just unfolding and de-evolving in a short couple of instances right. i mean it, it doesn't take long, uh, much to figure that out is this something in silicon valley is this something that is becoming more prevalent in the conversation or is everybody just kind of you know head down focused on their scale i think it's always hard to generalize a demographic right i'm sure in the special operations community there's different sub segments and subcultures right so uh but if i had to paint Silicon Valley in a broad brush, I would say that we, I think in Silicon Valley, we've seen tremendous value creation over the last 10, 15, 20 years, right? There's literally, you know, the guy after me, it's one year after me at Stanford started Snapchat, a, a guy two years ahead of me started Instagram. So you're literally seeing billionaires and multi hundred millionaires uh, being created in five years. Uh, and these are young guys. And, and girls. So I think with that kind of value creation, you get arrogance, confidence that uh, you are the masters of your universe. And I think that's where infrastructure organizations start failing when you have arrogance or conceit. Um, so I think there is probably a bit of a philosophical battle where you have this, I think everyone intends to do well. And I think the danger is if you think that you are infallible and you you, have, you know you have good intentions, you start becoming a dictator, uh, a very authoritarian perspective of impl implementing, hey, like I think I'm super smart, I'm smarter than everyone else, and therefore these set of different policies I'm gonna enforce on everyone else. Um, and I think part of that is, again, built from their experience that, hey, just by using computers and doing digital marketing, uh, creating, sophisticated machine learning algorithms to basically extract value from people's attention span, that business model has generated billions of dollars of wealth. Uh, is that necessarily reflecting based reality in terms of us being physical monkeys? I think that's that delta is starting to really show right now. And I think Silicon Valley, if you're just following like tech Twitter, VC Twitter, venture capital Twitter, there is, I would say, a, a a bifurcation or a sort of a battle of the soul of Silicon Valley where a lot of people are actually leaving because people are starting to realize that 
you can actually be pretty productive, if not more productive, being fully remote. And so I think the physical monoculture is starting to disintegrate right now. I mean, Pinterest, which is a, you know, a large public, you know, 20, 30 billion dollar social media company, they literally paid their office $800 million to break a 10, 20 year lease. So they literally paid a billion dollars to exit San Francisco. Wow. Yeah. You grew up in this world and I want people to get some understanding of kind of your journey through that. Um, how did you get to the place that you're at now, which I see is like a human performance biohacking expert who's innovating the integration of technology with physical, right? Yeah. And and that's something that I'm super interested in. But how did, how did that start? I grew up a math science nerd. So, uh, you know, grew up in a town called Palos Verdes down a suburb of Los Angeles, uh, super beautiful community. Um you know, fell in love with math science, was just a, a creative, curious boy. Read a lot of military history books when I was in like elementary school. So I remember reading about, uh, you know, the Pacific campaign, all the battleships fighting the, fighting the Japanese and the different campaigns, you know, in Europe. So always had this, I think, fascination with history, with conflict, with the military, but very much in a abstract like like Lord of the Rings style, right? Like General Patton was might as well have been Gandalf. So yeah. it's like very just like fun, like you're, you're a childhood kid. Fast forward, um, eventually found myself at Stanford studying computer science. And I think the way I look at the world through that lens is that I, to, I think every generation, every time and place has a way to affect maximal change. So in the era of Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, probably the best way to have influence in the world was to be a warrior leader. Fast forward to modern civilization, I don't think the game of creating physical hmm. warrior tribes is the way to play this current game. There are monopolies of physical violence in the forms of nation state governments. And I think the place of most creativity, innovation, and affecting change in the world is probably through business or economics. Right, like you're not going to start a militia and like take over parts of the world. Yeah. So agreed. I think that, that that physical dominance game is basically done, or it's a game that very few people can play. Probably three, three people can play that game. President of the U.S., China, Russia. Everyone else has to play a different game. So I, I think through that lens, it's how do you? So then it's like okay. I have a foundation in math and science. I was either going to study physics or computer science. And I think at Stanford at the time, uh, early two, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s, uh, all the social media internet companies started becoming super hyped up. So I was the president of the entrepreneurship club at Stanford. And our little student group raised $400,000 wow. in a year just to put on entrepreneurship events. And I think through that lens, just realizing that... Uh, through the vehicle of business to create assets, create infrastructure, and have leverage through organizations seem to be a really good game to play in terms of affecting change the way you see it in the world. Mm. And now I see, I, I, so, I think, so I think that's a kind of the substrate of why I think the business game is interesting. And then I think the way I think of myself now is that I'm interested in optimizing uh, compounding 
uh, entities, whether that's the individual, a small team, a company, or a culture or civilization. So I think the unifying theme is all these things can turn into compounding assets. So if you're healthier, you have 1% more cognitive performance, you compound that over every single day for a year. That's literally like a 10x, like a 1,000% improvement. If you do 1% incremental compounding influence, right? Like Warren Buffett's all about, you can compound 30% off of a small base over 30 years with a million dollars, you'll be like a 20 billionaire. So I think these very non-intuitive exponential functions whether that's with an individual or a nation state culture, I think that's like a super fascinating problem. Hmm. So, so in that lens, I think about compounding technologies, compounding organizations, uh, and that starts with the individual, hence human performance. And I would say that my particular approach comes from a computer science or engineering approach, hmm. meaning you have to measure something to optimize it, right? When you talk about uh, creating a car, right? The Model T, Ford Model T, 1940s, is the same object or same tool as the, the Tesla. But they look very, very different. But you're still optimizing on speed, gas efficiency, safety. So those same attributes can be quantified and optimized and measured. And you can do that at the civilizational scale as well as the individual scale. So human performance you know, is a very, I would say, personal uh, Obsession. So I started getting into personal uh, human performance about six, seven years ago. And that has created me down this path of uh, working with elite athletes, working with folks in your community, and uh, yeah, try, you know, continue to learn. Yeah, I know, like human performance, I always, when you say the word human performance, a lot of people forget that you, like you, like you, like you mentioned, quantifying like change. Um, can can be important for just normal people, right? And that's like, don't eat the cake every night after dinner. Um, and then if you continue to do that and you get 10 extra minutes of sleep or you take 10 minutes to yourself to do yoga, all these things exponentially add up. And I like that. I always teach that in tactics and even just mindset about uh, quantifying change by establishing a measure like what do you do like you have to quantify yeah and so when you look at human performance and you're doing this assessment in elite athletes what is the what is the baseline like what are you trying to improve is it i know it's a combination of, of like a hybrid uh, theory of many things including cognitive function but what's the overall objective is it superhuman is it super function is it just being better than we are um, because I get a sense that it's like these, these niche diets and these niche books on, um, living your best life. And I'm like, man, that, that just starts with like, how about you not focus on ketone esters before you, you don't know how to eat a balanced nutrition yep. diet, or how about you just get off your ass and move and walk. And, and many people who look into these things looking for look at, are looking for the shortcut right because they want to optimize the shortcut and um, be better than they are but they don't look at the basic primitive ancestral elements that you could change right now yeah I mean with with nothing do you look at that and how is that how yeah. does that play in yeah it's, it's super funny I know a lot of Silicon Valley millionaire biohackers who 
have all the gadgets and toys and the biohacking toys essentially, but are just like out of shape. And it's like, no matter how many supplements or red light therapy and saunas that you take, if you're just a fat blob, <laughs> you're not you're yeah. not optimizing your way out of that uh, without some fundamentals. Um, so speaking in terms of elite athletes, uh, I think what you realize is everything is so bespoke towards your objective function or the goal of your program, right? To build a special operator, very, very different uh, objective function than a Tour de France rider, Olympic powerlifter, a sprinter. Um, and even within the different objective functions that you're trying to optimize for, there's different starting, uh, whether genetic or environmental baseline that all of us start with. And there is, you know, I would argue that there's optimal performance and then longevity, which I think are orthogonal. So each of us have different goals with what we're trying to optimize for. But just from a basic athletic perspective, it's just like cognition. Like how do you measure IQ or, or cognition? And I think that's a very amorphous topic, but there are very basic attributes of cognition or physical performance that you can uh, stack up into more of a holistic framework, right? So things that are commonly measured are VO2 max uh, and then your lactate threshold. How long can you be running on glycolysis or carbohydrate before or, or, or fat before switching over to anaerobic process, mm. right? So some of these like base biochemical physiological responses, you can actually measure and then from there build up more deep concepts. But yeah, I think that's a common question in terms of how do you measure like skill sports, right? Like how do you measure and quantify LeBron James or Roger Federer, which, which is all technique versus like, okay, this person can sprint a hundred meter dash faster than the other person. So those are more, I would say, uh, harder to quantify, but uh, for something like Tour de France, so that's why cycling population is a very good uh, benchmarking population for a lot of human physiology and sports scientists because it's literally legs, output, not a lot of strategy in the game. So I think those are good base templates to then look for techniques that extrapolate across different types of sports. What would what you mentioned special operators? What what are some measures in in that field of expertise? I mean, if you say, "Hey, he's an operator at the top of the game, at top of his game," I just think, man, he's killed a lot of bad guys, right? Right? It, like yeah. at the speaking from that experience, it's like, oh yeah, he's he's done a lot of hits or been on a lot of objectives. But I would never go. Oh, he's run. He's his forty time is like crushing right. it. You know. Right. So how do you how do you stand apart? I mean, I know there's obviously things that you're going to do, but how does that tie in to the reality of something that's so diverse as a job and role, and then so subjective? Right. Right. Yeah, I think it's like what what later do you want to start measuring people? Right. At the policy level, it's like was this even the right mission to do? Like did we just like kick down and kill a bunch of people and like mm -hmm. that was actually counterproductive on the cultural or policy level, the winning of the hearts and minds level. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I, so I think it's, you can look at it from different layers of abstraction, but I think from the individual level, uh, things like reaction time, right? Like mm -hmm. how fast can you respond to stimuli? Right, like you know, you know, when we're out, you know, on the range earlier this week, right? Like you were, you, you know, you had like good benchmarks of 
what is a fast reaction time. Mm -hmm. Those can be trained, but there is some limit of human per perceptibility in terms of just like light, like literally how fast can electric stimulus trigger from, from your, from your uh, central nervous system. Um, so I think from those levels, I think there are just baseline, again, fundamental, fundamental building blocks that are quite adaptable basic attributes that can be used in multiple ways. So it would be the way to measure from the individual level up. But then I think from a policy perspective, there's just a lot, that's just like a very chaotic system to start analyzing. Yeah, it seems, I, my brain can't even wrap, like reaction time's a good one, right? Because yeah. it's that's something that's needed in every facet of it. But it's like, is this dude a former collegiate football player who has you know, higher you know, brain function and, and just as a faster reaction time versus the guy who took something and now you're like, oh man, we're, we're improving right. the overall performance. Because I remember getting the Nike, we got the Nike uh, eye-hand coordination, like there's a display with a ball and you have to touch the ball. And I realized I wasn't becoming better at my reaction time necessarily. I was just becoming better at, and more efficient at the game. Yes. Right? Versus the the raw skill set or, or subsource skill set. Um, I mean, I think that's actually a very open question within uh, neuroscience right now, right? Like if you're playing these brain training games, are you actually improving your baseline cognition or are you just optimizing for the said game? Mm. And I think that's like the very hard problem with training. And I think that's why with the, the course this past week, like you can teach people abstract specific lessons within a narrow domain, but how does that translate into reality? Yeah. And I think the best practice is like, yeah, you're getting reps. The best practice is reps doing the actual job, mm. whether that's special operations or business or sport. Yeah. I, I didn't, I never, like, you know, you talk about this Malcolm Gladwell thing and, tra and training with this 10,000 hours or 10 years of reps of doing something consistently over and over again. I never really felt like an expert um, at any one thing, right? I, I was decent and compared to my peers, I was top percentage or top bracket but when it comes to like shooting for example i i didn't figure it out for 20 years i mean I, I really didn't start realizing the deficiency and i had been to every training course shot with every professional shooter but it was just the culmination of time and experiences tied into one where i went oh shit now, now i can, now i've figured it out um and and like my, my I always talk about this for workouts, for example, and you might appreciate this perspective, like CrossFit. The entire function of, of working out is to add stress in some form or fashion, central nervous system tied to muscle. Um, but when you do CrossFit workouts of the day or just the movement, you're cheating or shortcutting the movement and, and the resistance. So you're actually you're getting more efficient, so you're, it's less resistance because the the uh, the uh, the uh, the game is how many reps and how much time. So it's you're literally defeating the purpose of what the workout is in the first place. Unless the workout is to win the CrossFit Games. Yeah, and, and then you get guys and and I, and people are like, "Oh, that's not true." I, I've seen it. I, I was a level one CrossFit certified instructor like before CrossFit was even a thing. And then you line that out and you look at people who can do a hundred kip-ups, which is a modified, you know, using the momentum of your body pull-up, but they can't do 10 straight arm pull-ups. You're like, well, wait a minute, the whole entire, because we looked at that in special operations and realized that deficiency. And then we started doing very specific strength and conditioning 
especially related to Olympic style lifts, yeah. because it was um, um, the moves, or I guess uh, the breakdown of the moves was was proven, um, and then you could measure it, and then you did it slow form instead of doing it in speed and reps. And I just never understood that. Like people, and then people never got it because they didn't realize that every major player in that game is on anabolic steroids. Well, they why they look like their ab- abdomens or their abs are protruding through their their body. You're like, oh, that's HGH. Yeah. Oh, that's anaerobic steroids. And they're like, oh no, that's all natural. Like, uh, no human being on the planet looks like that. Right. Um, and that's the biggest deficiency that I see in human performance. Period. Is these kids growing up wanting to be something they'll never be unless unless they're on 500 to 1,000 milligrams of tests yeah. a week or D ball or whatever it may be. And it's, it's almost like a whole skewed industry because when I was in my 20s, I was an endurance athlete. I mean, I went to a special operations selection and I was one of four out of 150 people who got selected. And when I went, I was like the top, I did a, a 20, what was it, 20, there's a 12 miler, a 21 miler. I did a 21 miler in three hours, which is like with a, with a, I think at the time it was like a 55 pound ruck wet. So that running with a ruck for 21 miles. And if you looked at my body, I had like a, a young Asian boy's body. <laughs> like there's nothing defined. I wasn't jacked. And you know, you spent some time with special operations. Like that's how we look like endurance athletes look like that, but that doesn't, define you being stronger or faster. It has nothing to do with that. The aesthetic is 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 a, almost a limiting factor when you look at the the abilities for to measure VO2 max and everything else. Yeah. I, I think it, again, goes back down to, to who can see objective reality more clearly. And I think that signaling, <sighs> appearance, if that's the game you want to play, then the, that that's orthogonal to what 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 is the true purpose of your of your mission. So I think so. That's again, I think going back down to I think a lot of people are playing side games or distracted with uh, objective functions that don't actually apply to doing the job at hand. You, that word, uh, that phrase, objective reality, is so important because the the problem I have is most people don't know they're playing the game. Right when you take it young, like the people who are running the systems know they're playing the game, right? Yeah. But the people who are just playing the game have no idea because they're the sheep that are being herded um, through the funnel. Yeah. And and I want to get your opinion on this because we had talked about it briefly, but social media and you mentioned a class away from yours was the guy or the the people who started Instagram, and. Look, I, I am an entrepreneur at heart. I grew up an entrepreneur. I grew up in my family's businesses, photoshops, restaurants, my mom's spa, just working, grinding, and seeing that ethic. And I appreciate it. It's something that I'm very passionate about. And when I first say these companies are suppressing us, the constitutionalist, um, even who is the hardcore constitutionalist will say, yeah, but it's they're private citizens who are running a private company. But now I'm looking at this objective reality and the influence that they have and the abilities they have to not only uh, change culture, but influence behavior and affect, um, effectively turn people into weapons. I mean, this weaponizing of human populations is not an accident. I mean, when you, when you could deliberately through an algorithm pump 
up the volume. That's a, that's a little song, but yeah. I don't know if you know that. But you could pump it up and amplify everything and get people enraged where they go out and ins- and you incite this violence that's a that's objective. It's like, dude, how is this not regulated at some sense? And I want to get your opinion on that because you live this world. Yep. I, I think it's a... Are you going to get in trouble if you say something? No, I believe in the okay. First Amendment. Right. Um, I mean, I believe in a world where actions have consequences. Um, and that's fine, right? Like, I, I, I guess, like, the, I think the game aspect... I want to just clarify in the sense that it's not to take that, like, you know, people's careers or livelihoods are, are, are silly childhood games. But I think I'm, I'm commenting on the fact that we're all playing on this game of paper money, U.S. dollars, right? Like, what is the current game? Like, why do people have jobs? If you actually abstract away, again, we're base advanced monkeys with tools. And only the things you really need is water, food, shelter, as we talked about in the, in, in the survival sections. Everything else is a human-made construct. And I think that uh, if you start from just, again, looking at base reality, everything that we're doing right right now, we're, we're taping a podcast. This is basically like a game to have our conversation and, and hopefully inspire, and, and inspire additional thought and feedback and commentary. But like, why are we doing this? It's like we're playing this game that's stimulating our novelty or stimulating some kind of rush of feeling self-important or, you know, some some uh, altruistic goal to say, hey, I want to help my tribe or community out. Um, so I think, again, overly broad paintbrush of Silicon Valley. I think just as uh, I feel like on on the right, people see that you know, people on the left have like a crazy agenda. I think it's the same uh, perspective from the left to the right in the sense that, oh, we know better. They've been tricked. They've been fooled. But I think everyone on both sides have like true believer good intent. Mm -hmm. Like I think on the left, they truly believe that uh, some of the content is divisive. uh, It's creating violence through speech. It's... uh, reinstituting this white patriarchy or whatever institutional racism or sexism. And I think they truly believe that. I think they're, they're, they're not like playing a game like, hey, we're going to troll people on the right or, or all of that. And I think the same thing on the, on the right to the left. Um, so I think from that, their lens, uh, I, I think it's a hard problem to solve because I think, I think the intent is good on both sides. But people just see and can choose to see different facts. The world is so big. That if you want to see protesters getting mauled by police officers, you can see 3,000 hours of footage on that side. Mm. If you want to see protesters becoming rioters and beating up small business owners and cracking police officers in the head with bats, you can see that all day long and realize, hey, these Black Lives Matters or Antifa people are literally domestic terrorists. Mm-hmm. And I think both is true. Like you can, it's depending on what information or inputs you want to observe and build your model around. So I think in terms of First Amendment, freedom of expression, I'm a pretty hardline, like simple, you can say anything you want. You sh- you, and if you say something stupid, you should be prepared to deserve the consequences of said action. Uh, I think it is an interesting debate right now. And I think it is just an open problem, open debate. Is a social media platform a private enterprise or is it the modern public square? And 
I think that's going to be litigated through court. <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, whether that's through legislation or the court system, uh, whoever's in charge is going to have to make that decision for the rest of our, our population. I think that that is a little bit of a battle of the soul and culture of our country. Um, my fear is that if we get so abstract from, again, base reality, we will be outcompeted by other countries, other cultures who are more focused and more aggressive towards fundamental base capabilities. I think we were just, you know, just, you know, just, you know, side conversations, you know, different countries are focusing on weaponizing space. And we're arguing about, I don't know, how many genders there are. And for me, it's like, because we're so successful the American system, we can have the luxury to talk about all these, I would say important issues, but abstract issues. And if other cultures, other civilizations are focused on true fundamental capability, I think we have an advantage now, but America, is a fairly young country We're, and there's no culture and civilization in history that has been uh, the dominant hegemon forever. And we should not be arrogant to think that we're special. Mm. And I think it, it reminds me of like the Roman empire with the barbarians, you know, as Roman empire devolved into entertainment, art, which I think are great pursuits. But if you overplay that abstract game and forget that we're advanced monkeys, the folks that were just really good at being a really you know strong, physically dominant monkeys took them all out. Mm -hmm. So that's the fear for me. Um, and I, again, like I don't want to be the dictator saying X or Y. I think it's like we as a culture, as a civilization, as a community, the American community needs to decide what game we're playing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I get. Um... I get a very odd feelings, you know, like I hear a girl I dated once, um, she once told me that she had 5,700 friends. And I said to her, I said, uh, I'm, you're referring to your followers. Do you, how many of those followers do you know? And she said, well, I know them all. I mean, I, they, they follow me and I follow most of them. I'm like, but they're not your friends. Do you know the difference between a friend and maybe an associate or maybe somebody who you think you know but she'd never met and she really couldn't articulate the difference because in her mind it was one and the same. And like when I look at Instagram, for example, um, they've suppressed our ability to gain reach, yep. which from a business perspective is problematic because um, I don't feel like ethically or morally we're doing anything wrong besides educating people and preparedness. That's from day one, that's been that. There's nothing political. Maybe my personal, my personal, not maybe, my personal has been political. But my business has been very narrow and in the niche of preparedness. So then they stop that and they say, hey, we're not going to allow this person or this business to pursue any more reach or, or really engagement, right? Or minimize, minimalizing engagement. And whether that's the algorithm or a manually uh, applied thing, the, the problem I have is, um, it's not the problem. I, it doesn't mean anything to me because... I get more out of hosting an event with 300 human beings where I shake everybody's hands and know the reach organically, like true organic. Organic has become like a, a tech term now. Yeah. But literally shaking hands is more important because I know every single one of those people are telling their friends and their family. And we're developing a web that's real. 
And that's more important to me than anything else, which is hence this podcast, right? It's like the longer form discussion where people are listening to me and you run our mouths for an hour has more resounding, deeper meaning in the funnel, in business, but also in life. I'm tired of this temporary cliche bait apparatus. Like it, it doesn't have any meaning. Right. What has meaning is like when we're running a course and you see uh, Morgan, one of the ladies who attended the course who'd never killed a chicken before, but she's understanding the process of like the cycle of life. Like I can go to Chick-fil-A and crush chicken sandwiches, but I don't understand what that is. It's just manufactured. Yep. And she's more closely connected holding a rooster bleeding out of its neck and realizing that it's real than she is an experience uh, through technology. And I, I don't know if that's a, a model for success in business via hybrid version of that because, you know, my mom is a small business owner. She's, she, she has clientele she's had for 40 years. That's deep and meaningful. So at the end of the day, what's deep and meaningful? The scale in which you grow a company into hundreds of billions of dollars that you can't even wrap your head around or the day-to-day interactions you have with human beings that brings you great happiness in your mediocre home. You know, right. I, I just want to, I want to figure that shit out for myself. I mean, I think it's a, it's, it, I, you want both ultimately, right? Like the most successful companies, for example, Apple, people feel like they have a personal connection with Apple. So I think the benefit of technology is that you can scale that feel, that simulation of that personal touch. And I think you've done a good job personally with that, right? Like I think you have all your followers, people that follow podcasts. I think, again, the long-form conversations that can be disseminated is, I think, that is one of the benefits of technology. I I, I would imagine that a lot of your listeners feel like they understand Mike Glover, the human being, without you having to, again, shake hands with 150,000 people, Mm -hmm. which is not scalable. So I don't think we will not be able to put Pandora's box back in. I think the question is, how do we utilize the benefits of technology in a way that uh, doesn't turn into monopoly power. Because I think if you look at a lot of natural outcomes or the leverage of technology, it's a very Pareto or power law distribution. Uh, Naturally, the bigger you get big, and especially with the current situation, right? The stock market is ripping. It's like ridiculous, right? Like my stock portfolio is basically all time highs. I mean, and I I say that in a very like privileged, uh, humble way. And it's like nothing I did, it's just like literally this public equities assets are inflating essentially. And then you just talk to like normal people and it's like, they're fucking struggling. And you're just like, well, like the rich are getting richer, the poor are struggling, or the people that are in, in the middle are just are just struggling. And I think again, like we as a society, as a culture need to understand like, what are we playing for? And uh, like, I, I'm like, basically I think as an individual and as I realize that we're just playing a human made game like I would love to be in a position where I can help set the rule of the game, but at my current position or level, I'm just playing what's the game around me. And I, I, and I feel like uh, that's the most efficient use of my time, right? Like I can complain about the rules of society, but that's wasted effort. So what can I do? Well, I can play at the, my current level, accrue assets, infrastructure, do what I can locally, and hopefully have the opportunity and earn the opportunity to influence and play at a higher level game. I love that, that, that um, 
Silicon Valley take, but it's real humanistic in, in, in the condition, right? It's like affect what you can affect and stop focusing on the wasted energy on things you can't necessarily. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think then people get emotional, they get frustrated and, and how do they release that anger, especially if you've been like sort of forced cooped up for the last six, nine months. Yeah. Let's talk about HVMN. I first saw you on Netflix on a documentary about um, what you were doing with ketogenics and yep. human performance. Yep. Uh, what's the name of that series or that um, that episode? Uh, unwell fasting. Unwell and fasting. Yeah. And you were you were doing some experiments yourself, uh, using yourself as uh, an experiment uh, for for several different versions of this. Is that pre this HVMN or is it as part of your role in that uh, your company constantly looking at biohacks? I think it was, uh, not to overuse the word organic, it was, I, I, I think base, all of us are, are just following our personal curiosity. And I think I just took it and, and was able to be lucky to figure out how to tie that in a self-perpetuating compounding organization in, in the form of a business that works with elite athletes, works with uh, different high-performing communities. Where did that come from? Did you, I mean, what's, do you remember the- The genesis? Yeah. I mean, the genesis was that I had sold my first company to Groupon uh, right before I turned 24 and had some time to just think about problems to solve. I saw that my smartest friends in the computer science program at Stanford were basically, uh, optimizing all of our brains to click different ads. And I was like, hey, that's, that doesn't seem like a really interesting problem. Um, and and, and, to, and I, I think to be honest, I think a lot of my friends realize that, that are in that kind of job don't necessarily think it's fulfilling, but they're getting paid a shitload of money, right? So it's like, I, I, and, I, and I, don't, I don't blame them, but I think it's like, it was not necessarily intellectually fulfilling that I wanted to pursue. So I, went, I was looking, hey, the human system, the human machine could be much more optimized. If you look at our uh, demographics, 75% of us Americans are overweight, obese. Over a third of us are pre-diabetic or have diabetes. And all these are going up and to the right, right? Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, metabolic-related syndromes are skyrocketing, even though we spend more than anyone else and have most resources on healthcare. So that seemed personally like a more interesting, more important problem to solve. And then the selfish angle was, hey, Again, going back to power laws, if I can be 1%, 10%, a little bit smarter, your outcome oftentimes is much, much greater. I like to liken it to economic warfare. If, if you're the number one ride-sharing company, you're worth 10 times more than the number two ride-sharing company. And I think that's gonna, just going to happen with internet technology. And that's going to happen for every single industry. You already start seeing that with Amazon, Basically, all-time highs, small business retailers, all bankrupt, right? So like, I think that pattern is going to naturally occur with a, a capitalist system that, if not properly regulated to, to maintain a free market, that is kind of the natural direction in terms of the bigger getting stronger and more powerful. Um, so for me, when I first got into human performance, well, it's like, okay, the modern human is competing on an intellectual creative level, right? Like in caveman times, you're likely selected on your physical robustness. Now no one cares how much you carry, right? In a, in like a normal, you know, civilian job. It's like, 
how much creativity and how much intellectual output can you put out? So I wanted to optimize my cognitive performance. So I got into the world of nootropics, cognitive enhancers, and just started tinkering with uh, all the biohacker research chemicals. So I remember, you know, this is probably 2014, 15, uh, reading a bunch of forums and then importing research chemicals like Russian Alzheimer drugs, different peptides, research chemicals uh, off of like chemical suppliers like Alibaba, just getting like bags of white powder <laughs> shipped and then like getting like milligram, microgram accurate drug scales essentially to like weigh out my own uh, nootropic stacks. Uh, some of the stuff was- Were you the, taking it by your, like were you yeah, so putting me, it in your me body? Me and some friends were just like, just doing like very N equals one, just crazy adventurous stuff. So it's nothing was illegal, right? I'm not talking, you know, scheduled <laughs> drugs. This is all legal, but like not for human consumption, like random powders essentially. Yeah. Uh, and then some, you know, some were less validated by science. Some were, had more randomized controlled early human studies. And to me, it was like, okay, there, there's definitely some signal or interest here. And how this hobby turned into more of a business idea was that, you know, looking at Google Trends, and, you know, it's like a common technique that I have in terms of just spotting opportunities to play around in. You just saw a lot of organic growth within uh, people searching for nootropics. And then one plus two was like, okay, I'm like spending a lot of effort trying to like source random base powders online. And hopefully I wasn't just ingesting like heavy metals and lead and mercury. I wanted to test this stuff. And then two, a lot of people are also trying to solve this problem for themselves. Maybe there could be like a small business here. Mm. So I just met, eventually ended up building a service to just do that for myself. And within eight months of just being online, we're doing $80,000 a month of sales. And I was like, okay, this, you know, it's like basically a million dollar a year business off of just like running a little e-commerce site with like very little marketing. It's like, okay, this could be a real business. And that just opened up this uh, broad opportunity to really dive deep into human performance. And I think the more experience I have, I, I think you just realize how timing and luck matters so much. Like there's a ton of smart people that work really damn hard. Like I think, you know, the small business owner that's a sole proprietor probably works hard as hard, if not harder than all of us, just like keeping their lights on. But whether it's timing, market, opportunity, doesn't, doesn't compound, right? And a lot of it's luck. I think for me, I, it was in the right time, in right place in terms of Silicon Valley started like bending towards human performance stuff. Mm. So if you looked at a lot of the news articles circa 2016, 2017, um, there's been you know a bunch of New York Times articles or, or whatnot talking about, you know, Silicon Valley bros or biohackers are fasting, are doing smart drugs and a lot of that covered me and my friends. And, and then through that, there was some compounding factor where as I had a little bit of a reputation or awareness in that space, people came to me. Mm. And that, you know, that, that flywheel turn in terms of, hey, like these people in Silicon Valley were interested in optimizing human performance. Mm. And then from there, from the cognitive base, um, you were able to attract really high level talent, you know, PhDs from Oxford, masters in chemical engineering from MIT Stanford, just build a really top tier team in terms of just actually backing the the hobbyist, enthusiast, kind of the trend-based initial vector into this area, plus all the proper academic, randomized controlled, sort of like proper science perspective of the world. And I think 
what we brought together was this engineering mindset. And then all of that together gave us a little vehicle to uh, grow our IP technology insight into the space as well as our reach in the space. So uh, through cognition, got into overall metabolic health, which opened up metabolism, cognition, physical performance. And, and that's sort of where we're at today. Where's it, what's the oh shit moment in all this? Is, was there like something that you discovered or is there something that's definitively um, standing out to you in this realm or this world that you're like, I can't believe people don't do this or know this? Is there, because I, you know, I use your product, the ketones, which um, take me typically three to five days to get into ketosis that you literally could just take in a shot yeah. and you're in ketosis in like 30 minutes. Yeah. What, what was that if there was anything? I think there are like magical like technologies or techniques, but I think going back to your point, I think I'll, I'll take this question two ways. I think there's very minor adjustments to your lifestyle that can pay huge dividends, right? Like people should just cut out refined sugars, mm have a shorter eating window, and uh, just through some mild dietary adjustments, you can really improve your blood markers in terms of all, you know, fasted blood sugar, uh, hemoglobin A1C, like all these metabolic biomarkers that lead to chronic health conditions, very simple adjustments can, can really materially change. So I think from that level, that's like, it's just so low hanging fruit that very free minor adjustments can help so many people. And then from the high performance end, um, it's, uh, I think what I saw was that, and I think why I got personally much more into physical fitness was that folks in the special operations community or elite athletes are freaking smart and they're freaking super fit. And I was like, like very focused on like, okay, brain is everything, cognition is everything. And I realized that, hey, these people are both very smart and very fit. And I felt like I should be exploring that aspect of being a human more. And I think that led me down the path of getting much more into fitness personally, as, as opposed to kind of an abstract academic perspective. Um, so I think the most surprising thing on that level is that there is a lot of sophistication in terms of experimentation, almost like witch doctor, uh, kind of tinkering at the very edges of performance. Mm. Um, and, uh, I think to me, it almost, you know, one can say it's pseudoscience or witch doctor stuff, but to me, that's almost like the original intent of science is pushing what is known. And I think uh, that's where I've been had the most fun in terms of, okay, like there's, you know, friends who are literally zapping their bodies with DC electricity. You don't do it across the heart because you'll give yourself a heart attack, but uh, on the same side of the body to try to accelerate muscle healing. And, you know, that's like just one anecdote of people just like really pushing the edges of what's known. And then, yeah, with the, with, with exogenous ketones, um, yeah, it, it was very magical the first time if you're actually measuring measuring your uh, blood beta hydroxybutyrate and if you've done ketogenic diet or fasting, it's very hard to become keto adapted and have elevated B and nutritional ketosis with high levels of ketones in your bloodstream. And this is very measurable and very quantifiable. And then with a drink, you can look like you've been fasting for seven days in 30 minutes. And it's like, wow, that's pretty magical. Yeah. So um, 
what is magic? It's this technology you don't understand. And I think that's the cool part of being in technology and science. Like you're basically creating magic. I, I like the the one thing that keto diet has helped me and, and the guys that work for me is we all have similar traumatic brain injuries yep. over years of exposure to blast and breaches and shotguns and you know Gustafs and all these different weapon systems uh, and, or, and or getting blown up. And it's helped me because my brain consumed with sugar. I mean, I, I ate no carbohydrates as a 20-year-old operator in special operations. Like my, in my entire 20s, I no refined sugar, never a soda in my life. Didn't even drink caffeine in my 20s. Was super disciplined. Got in my 30s where I exited the military and then felt like I was in a fog constantly. And then that diet simply is... Uh, eating a, a keto diet cleaned my brain up and I was able to think clearly almost like I was on like some kind of, um, you know, I was like on Adderall or something like yeah. that. It just, it was very bizarre. Um, and then I started looking into um, the ketones and I remember this being, you know, through that bulletproof thing, yeah. a $25,000 thing in the early stages of this technology or, or getting it out there. Yeah. Why? Why is that? Is it because the? I mean, how? How come? How like this bottle of keto ketones? How does that become so expensive as a process? And then, and then, how does it? How does it become? Uh, how do you become a uh, in a ketosis state immediately in a thirty minute window? Like I, I can't even wrap my head around that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting physiology. So. Uh, most of like you know organic molecules have what are called chiral forms so if you look at your left hand and right hand there's four fingers and a thumb but they're not you can't overlay them on top of each other so it's the same chemical formula like six carbons 10 hydrogens three oxygens but they're in mirror forms of each other so our biology is very specific towards specific chiral forms or stereoisomers uh your enzymes only work on you know, the L form or the D form for different molecules. Now, to if you're running a, just a synthetic chemical reaction, you get random 50-50 mixes of all these molecules when you produce them. So specifically for ketones, when your body naturally converts its fat stores into beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the main ketone body that our system uses, your liver converts into specifically D-beta-hydroxybutyrate as opposed to L. So in that sense, uh, it's very, very hard for a synthetic process to pick out D and L because it's exactly the same chemical weight. So you can't like have a centrifuge and split them out by weight. Um, same polarization, so you can't use magnetics to like separate them. So it's, it's a very expensive process to purify to a specific uh, biological equivalent form. So you can make ketones relatively cheaply if you just don't care and have DL 50-50 mix and put them in a high mineral load in a form of called ketone salts. You can deliver ketones pretty uh, cheaply. So specifically with this ketone ester, uh, uh, you basically the molecule is specific, the correct uh, stereoisomer that your body naturally produces. So it's literally like looks equivalent to what your body produces naturally. Uh, and I think, I mean, the technology that really unlocked this uh, 
production of scale was the rise of synthetic biology, right? Instead of purifying crude oil or petroleum products, which is a carbon back backbone, right? It's like kind of interesting to think that a lot of the like makeup and uh, a lot of like the food flavors are actually uh, purified from crude oil. It's the same carbon backbone. Uh, but the, with the rise of synthetic biology, you can genetically engineer E. coli, bacteria, yeast to consume sugar and then excrete out exact molecules that you want. And there's a lot of what are called biofoundries that can produce essentially arbitrary molecules to the specific chiral forms that you want. And then through that technology, we're able to scale down and produce exogenous ketones or ketone esters to exactly the bioavailable form that the, that the human naturally produces. So when you take this, do you get the, I know that you get the cognitive um, um, benefit, but do you get the metabolic benefit? Yeah, so that's a nuanced question. So when you consume exogenous ketones, you are adding extra calories in the form of ketones into your system. So normally in a ketogenic diet, you have a restriction of carbohydrate and it forces your body to convert its fat stores into ketones and use that as a primary or a, a dominant fuel source. And a lot of people have probably heard of keto from weight management or weight loss. Kim Kardashian, you know, famously and Halle Berry use that as a way to manage your body composition. So a lot of people think, oh, can I just drink ketone esters and then melt fat off my body? I remember there's like a Daily Mail article like this is Kim Kardashian's, you know, melt fat off your body in a bottle. And we're like, you know, facepalm because, <laughs> you know, that we, we don't break the second law of thermodynamics. And essentially like we don't like negatively delete calories from your, from your system. So from that perspective, it doesn't like be like, it's not like antimatter where it like deletes calories from your system. So from that perspective, it doesn't uh, melt fat off your body. But in terms of metabolism, what is literally at the cutting edge of academia today is that what are the benefits of ketosis? Uh, is it a signaling molecule that activates a lot of the longevity pathways? So one area that I'm personally interested in, in doing research on is we know that calorie restriction extends lifespan, right? That's like one of the most dominant known proven ways that you can extend lifespan. Now the question is, why does calorie restriction work? My hypothesis that I would say a growing people, a number of people believe is that it's actually mediated through the presence of ketones. So calorie restriction because you are in ketosis. And now the question is, is the calorie deficit driving longevity or is it ketones driving longevity? I think it's a bit of both. So I think uh, there's probably benefit of restricting overconsumption of energy, overconsumption of carbohydrate, but there's benefit that ketones alone can give you. So there's good data showing that ketones accelerate recovery. Uh, it's a what's called a HDAC inhib inhibitor. So it unfolds uh, DNA, so it overexpresses uh, like FOXO3, which is a longevity pathway. Some of these like molecular pathways that have been shown to improve longevity. So like ketones themselves directly trigger those biochemical pathways. Mm. Um, so I think where I net out is use ketones as a tool and as a specific lever for an overall longevity performance protocol. Mm. Where do you go from here for, with, um, 
the company. Do, do you have anything on the horizon that's exciting for you that you could talk about? And then how do you evolve what this is now and into what you want it to be? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say that HVMN Health via Modern Nutrition has a, probably like a similar mission to, uh, I think, what a lot of what you talk about in terms of like, we want to make people a better version of themselves. And I think our specific angle is around what we interpret as a modern scientific driven approach to nutrition through, and I think primarily through metabolic health or, or, or ketosis. So, uh, you know, a couple of the things that are, you know, we're working on is a new product. Um, depending on when we air this, maybe, you know, we can do a promotion to properly announce that. But also looking at different forms of exogenous ketones. I think there are, you know, we have this specific ketone ester, but just like uh, how there's different types of proteins, different types of carbohydrates, different types of fat, the three macronutrients, our vision is that there will be a fourth macronutrient under the form of ketones, and there will be different types of exogenous ketones that one can use, utilize for different uh, types of performance. So there's a different form of a ketone ester called an acetoacetate diester that has been studied for oxygen toxicity for deep sea diving, for example. And that's a very different profile than this beta-hydroxybutyrate-1,3-butane diomonoester. And there's literally like different variations of exogenous ketones that can be developed and optimized for different types of use cases. Just like you have pure dextrose in your Coca-Cola, there's like starches, there's complex starches, simple starches, just like there's nuance in carbohydrate, just like there's omega-6s, omega-3s, DHA, EPA, linoleic acid for fats, and just like there's you know leucine, glycine, theanine as amino acids for proteins or precursors to proteins, there's going to be that level of sophistication with ketones. And hopefully we'll be a part of bring a new fourth macronutrient to the world. Mm. That's heavy. That's a lot of shit. Yeah, I just science bombed a bunch of stuff. No, that's awesome though. At least somebody's doing it. I mean, <laughs> it won't be me. We'll be teaching survival courses. Um, but I know you got to get on a, a flight. Um, but real quickly, what, just in case, what is that new product that you're launching? Or has it been launched yet? In a towards the end of October. Can you even say it? My team's gonna get mad if I. If but I it's a new. Pro is it a new consumable? New consumable. Okay, so it's a consumable, and hopefully, yeah. well, we'll get the we'll part talk two offline of this. and figure it out. Yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, where can people find the company and everything that you guys are doing right now? Yeah, I mean the handles HVMN stands for Healthy and Modern Nutrition. So four letter domain. We have all the social handles. Look us up there, and then find me personally, Jeffrey Wu, G E O F F R E Y W O O. Um, yeah, I, I think like yourself, happy to engage and, and you know have a conversation here. I think that's ultimately. Uh, what life's about, like basically being in person with cool people and hopefully uh, changing the world together in a, in a way that we see fit. It should be a new app or something. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Mike. If you see me running, I run to the front and I take all the brunt of the thunder's weight. I alter my face from what I feel. The tip of the spear